0: I am the author of Joseph, The Lifetimes and Places of the Elephant Man, and today I'm going to tell you a story of a remarkable young man from his humble beginnings in Leicester and the social history that affected his life and strength and humility he showed as he tried to survive. So ladies and gentlemen, I would like to introduce you to Joseph Carey Merrick, the Elephant Man. Many believe Joseph was born and raised in London. And why not? Because you've seen the film. It doesn't mention Leicester at all. You would not be wrongly wrong in thinking that Joseph was dumped in a workhouse, and enslaved and sold to a freak show from a very young age. And yes, the Merrick family can be traced back to London. We can find the Merricks in 1690 in here, in the Spitalfields and White District areas. And it was Joseph's grandfather, Barnabas Merrick, who found his way to Leicester in 1837 with his third wife, Sarah Rockley Merrick. Joseph's story begins in 19th century Leicester, an industrial town thriving during the Industrial Revolution. The town was landscaped with factories, shoe manufacturers and engineering firms. And Joseph's mother, Mary Jane Potterton, was born in a little village outside Leicester called Evington. The family worked in the agricultural trade and when Mary was about four years old, the family moved to Thermiston. Mary Mary went into service like many young girls and worked as a servant at a makers on Kank Street in Leicester, where she would have met Joseph Rockley Merrick, a warehouseman. The young couple married here at All Angels, St. Michael's and All Angels Parish Church in Thurston. This was the village where Mary Jane grew up. Now when Mary Jane walked down the aisle, she was already eight weeks pregnant, which was incredibly shameful. Many young women in her position either found themselves on the streets, in the workhouse or even committed suicide. But the young couple settled here on Lee Street, the same street where Joseph Rockley had grown as a youth and where his mother, Sarah, was still living at number 20. Six months into their marriage, there was the annual May Fair at On Humberstingate in 1862. Now, it is said that it is at the May Fair that Mary Jane Merrick was frightened or trodden on by an elephant or a parade of elephants while she was pregnant. And this is what caused her son's condition. Now, this was called maternal impression. This is when an outside stimulus affects the unborn fetus. Now, we know this not to be true, but back then they truly did believe it. And Mary used this reason to explain her son's condition. Three months later, Mary Jane gave birth to a little baby boy called Joseph Carey Merrick. And he was born at 50 Lee Street. The area is now been demolished. And it was demolished in the pre-World War II slum clearance of the 1920s and 1930s. And it was replaced by a U.S. army camp and an area which stores large quantities of water in tanks ready for the blitz so that the fires during the war could be put out relatively quickly without having to travel too far to get any water. Now, after the war, Leicester did what it does best and, wait for it, put up a parking lot. Now, as i said, the area was demolished in the pre-World War II slum clearance. So there isn't actually much left of Lee Street. The only bit we have left in Leicester is a little bit down at the bottom end called Lower Lee Street. And there you can still see the size of the street and how wide it would have been or how narrow it would have been. And partly up the street, you can still see the sets or the cobbles on the street that would have been there when when Joseph was around, but the area now is surrounded by high-rise flats. Where Joseph was born on 50 Lee Street, it's actually the multi-storey car park and 50 Lee Street would have been slap bang in the middle. The Merricks lived on Lee Street for about four years and in 1866 they moved to Upper Brunswick Street, where Mary Jane gave birth to a little boy called William Arthur. And then one year later, she gave birth to a little girl called Marian Eliza. Now, Marion, on her death certificate and on the census records, it does say that she was crippled and deformed from birth. We don't know what she suffered from, but it does say on a death certificate that she died from spinal seizures. These have been reported to be linked to sclerosis. The family moved around a bit and they're moving further and further out of town by 1869, they're in an area called Burstall Street. These are pictures of the two areas. Upper Brunswick Street, which was probably very similar to Lee Street, would be a basic two-up, two-down terraced house with no frontage. But Burstall Street, now when Joseph Rockley Merrick was actually, had the house up for sale. It was described in the papers as three bedrooms with a kitchen, a parlour, a cellar, a water and gas fittings. Joseph Rockley Merrick worked in many warehouses and he also owned a haberdashery shop and an oil and lamp dealership. So from now on I'm now going to call Joseph's father Joseph Senior and I'm going to call Joseph Joseph so we don't get confused. So here we go. Joseph Senior Worked in many warehouses, owned a haberdashery shop and an oil and lamp dealership. This haberdashery shop was number 37 Russell Square and you can see it here. The area has now been demolished and it is now part of the St Matthews Housing Estate. But if you go there, the rough outline of how the shop actually looked and its dimensions is still there. And it's on the corner of Russell Square and Junction Road. As well as working in the shop, Mary Jane Merrick was also a Sunday school teacher and she taught Sunday school at their Baptist church where they worshiped. This Baptist church was Archdeacon Lane Baptist church. And there was also a Sunday, as well as a Sunday school, there was also an infant school attached, which may have been where Joseph and his brothers and sisters got their education. But this chapel is also linked to another famous Leicester son, the, the travel entrepreneur, Thomas Cook. Thomas Cook and his family worshipped at Archdeacon Lane Baptist Church at the same time as the Merricks. And in fact, Thomas Cook's daughter, Annie Elizabeth, also taught Sunday school alongside Mary J. Merrick. So the family would have probably either known each other or knew of each other. As I said before, the family liked to move around a bit and they were moving further and further out of the the town of Leicester. And by 1872-1873, they'd moved to Cranbourne Street in the Belgrave district. Once again, Cranbourne Street has been demolished. It was rows and rows of terraced houses, probably three three downs and three ups with a factory at the, the bottom end. This is how the area looks now. This is the St Marks Housing Estate in the Belgrave area. And it was on the 29th of May of that year, 1873, that was actually reported as quite a cold month. There were average temperatures of 12 degrees. Mary Jane Merrick died aged only 36 of bronchial pneumonia and she is buried here at Welford Road Cemetery in the city of Leicester. Excuse me. Thirsty work. This is where Mary Jane is buried. She's buried alongside her younger son, William Arthur. William Arthur died aged only four years of scarlet fever, and he was buried on Christmas Day in 1870. Fifteen months after Mary Jane passed away, Joseph Rockley, sorry, Joseph Senior, married a young widow called Emma Wood Antill. She brought into the marriage two young daughters about the same age as Joseph. Joseph left school at 13, which is the normal school even age, and got a job working in a cigar factory, possibly rolling cigars or, or picking at the stems. This job lasted about two years till Joseph was about 15 years old. But by then the job was getting more difficult for him. It seems that his disability was increasing and presenting itself. Page 15 The r- measurement around Joseph's wrist was 12 inches, and the measurement around his finger was 5 inches. inches. So Joseph Sr. got Joseph a hawker's license to sell goods around the streets of Leicester. Possibly goods from the haberdashery shop, anything you could easily fit round a tray around your neck, such as laces, gloves, bobbins, needles, that type of thing. But the competition was tough. It was Napoleon Bonaparte who once said that the English are a nation of shopkeepers, but I think he should have possibly added in peddlers, beggars and street sellers. Hawkers needed licences, beggars didn't. And this made the work increasingly difficult for Joseph to actually sell what what he had and he said that when he went home and he hadn't made enough money or sold sold his quota he would be beaten or not given enough food. Of course we see this as child abuse now but back then the Victorians really did believe in spare the rod and spoil the child. And it was one evening that a neighbour of the Merricks was standing outside her house in Russell Square, Drusilla Rudd, and she was talking to her neighbours about the treatment of the Merrick children. And Joseph Rockley Merrick came out and threatened to smash her head in if she talked about him any more. And with that, he struck her two violent blows and bruised her collarbone. So this may have been the straw that broke the camel's back. Joseph left home for good, and moved in with his uncle Charles Barnabas Merrick, a hairdresser on Churchgate. Mm-hmm. Joseph lived with his uncle for two years, and within those two years, Joseph's father sold the Aberdashery shop and the oil and, de- lim- oil and lamp dealership and was moving further and further into the Belgrade. He'd also had three more children. So, he, so, in his ever-increasing family, he had his new wife, Emma, his two stepdaughters, his daughter from his first marriage and three further daughters. His uncle Charles's family was growing as well, and he also had his mother, Sarah, living with him. So, on the 29th of December, 1879, a young 17-year-old Joseph Merrick took the mile-long walk from Churchgate in Leicester, to the Leicester Union Workhouse. The night Joseph arrived was the annual prize giving. There was about 1,200 residents plus an extra 200 guests there at the festivities, but Joseph wouldn't have seen any of this. He would have been taken straight into the receiving rooms where he would have been given a tepid bath, clothes, Oh, sorry, got me on my knee. <laughs> tepid bath, a change of clothes, and he spent two days there. Now Joseph was, <laughs> sorry, Joseph was admitted as a class two. I'm trying to get my words back out now, but I'm being catted. Uh, as you can see, Millie, 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 look. nope, she's not looking. Jo- Joseph was, ad- was admitted as what they call a class two. This tells us what jobs Joseph would have done and the food he would have eaten. For breakfast, he would have had six ounces of bread and one and a half pints of gruel. For lunch, one and a half pints of soup. Supper, six ounces of bread and two ounces of cheese. Now, the class two also tells us the type of jobs. And this this was a class one with adult male with little exercise and the type of jobs Joseph would have been expected to do would have been from um, oak and picking to stone grinding to what they call bone crushing, where the bones were used for fertiliser. And it wasn't unheard of, and especially when you look at what they had to eat, that the workers who were bone crushing were known to eat the putrid remains of the flesh off the bones because they were absolutely starving. Two years into Joseph's stay at the union workhouse, he had an operation to remove a growth out of his mouth. This growth was pushing his lips back and hindering his speech. Now back in the early 1800s, there was no anaesthetic. And it was said that a good surgeon could take a leg off in two and a half minutes. Obviously good for the surgeon, but probably not so good for the patient. When Joseph had his operation, he would have been given chloroform to be knocked out and pain relief would have come in the form of either laudanum or opium. Now that I've got cat hairs now, (laughs) there isn't actually much left of the union workhouse. The original gates are still there and the original retaining wall. Where the workhouse stood is Moat Community College. Now inside Moat Community College is a little plaque which was given to the city by the friends of Joseph Carey Merrick and was placed on the old theater on Wharf Street. That theater or the building was subsequently demolished and the plaque was given to Moat Community College, which as I said, stands on the original workhouse. Joseph was in the workhouse for four years and I expect he was looking at a way to escape the discipline and the routine. And he knew that his unique physical appearance drew interest, so Joseph wrote to the local music hall proprietor Sam Tor, to offer his services. Sam Tor was well known in venues in London, but his father was a tailor so he moved back up to Leicester. He dealt more with musical variety acts and not actually freak shows. And he had two venues in Leicester. They are the Green Man and the Gaiety Palace of Varieties. The Green Man still stands today. It's rather derelict and it's on Wall Street. And the Gaiety Palace of Varieties was actually demolished. Um, I think it was last used in Leicester as a motor parts um, shop and if you look very, if you go down Wharf Street, or if you can see from this picture, you can still see the ghostly outline of the steps and the different levels and the stages of the theatre. Now, many people believe that Joseph was exhibited here. I personally don't. I think it's probably actually a bit too close to home. Where the Palace of Variety stood was on the corner of Wharf Street and Gladstone Street, which was directly opposite, opposite Lee Street. And although the Merricks weren't living in the area then, it still was the area where they were working and living. So I think that would have been a little bit too close to home. I believe that Joseph was first exhibited with John Ellis at the Beehive in Nottingham. In 1884, the year that Joseph left the workhouse, these types of shows had reached their heyday. There was the goose fair, ghost fair, exhibitions, Lord George Sanger, P.T. Barnum, Bostock and Woomwells were all household names. But once you'd seen Joseph's show, you'd pay your penny, you'd gaff, you'd wow. But why would you go again? It's not going to change. So when Joseph exhausted the Midland circuit, he travelled down to London with George Hitchcock, another member of his management team, to meet. Tom Norman. Now it's Tom Norman who is portrayed as Bites in the 1980s film The Elephant Man. He is shown as a drunken alcoholic old bully who beat Joseph and locked him up but this couldn't actually be further from the truth. Tom Norman was a member of the Church of England Temperance Society also, a member of the Travellers National Temperance Society and took his responsibilities very seriously, so he certainly wasn't a drunk. I'm not saying he was a saint, he had plenty of convictions, mainly from public order offences and not paying fines. And in fact, one of his sons on his birth certificate does say, Born in a caravan on wasteland opposite Pentonville Prison. But when Tom first saw Joseph, he looked at him and thought, oh, my God, I can't use you. But he said he looked into Joseph's eyes and saw pleading and suffering, took his hand and said, well, Mr. Merrick, I will call you Joseph, if I may. The young pair set up shop here. This is 123 Whitechapel Road, building still stands today, and it is now a Sari shop. The shows that Tom performed and exhibited had to be incredibly portable, so he could assemble them and disassemble them relatively quickly. For heat and cooking, there was a gas ring with bricks around it, two metal beds, a straw mattress, curtain for privacy. And it was one morning that Tom woke up and the curtain wasn't shut properly, and he saw that Joseph was asleep sitting up. And he asked Joseph why he slept sitting up, and Joseph said, "If I lie down, I shall wake up with a broken neck." So Tom commissioned a friend of his called Joe Wintle to make what very something very similar to a dairy-made yoke, so it would so support Joseph's head. But Joseph found it incredibly uncomfortable and refused to wear it. Now the shows began with anticipation and banter. The Elephant Man is not here to frighten you, but to enlighten you. But I would like to stress that ladies in a delicate state of health are advised not to attend. And the showman would launch into this tale of how Joseph's mother was trodden on by an elephant that caused his son condition and you'd hear screaming and, sh- and and shouting. But it was the showman's job to tell the tale. If he didn't, they wouldn't get the punters in and they wouldn't get any money. But as well as telling the... T- Millie! <laughs> but as well as telling the tale, they also sold pamphlets, which told you a little bit more about Josie's life. These pamphlets sold for a penny. And all the money went to Joseph. This was his earnings and his spending money. Now, by the mid 19th century, these shows were major institutions. There was no legislation preventing human exhibits. Medical professionals visited freak shows and examined deformed bodies. Sir John Bland Sutton, an eminent surgeon, often visited the East End to see dwarves, fat women and giants. The first time Bland Sutton saw Joseph, he said, a poor fellow with a deformed head, face and limbs. His skin, thick and pendulous, hung in folds and resembled that of a hide of an elephant. 120 Whitechapel Road, where Joseph lived with Tom, was opposite the London Hospital, which attracted many medical students. And it was a Dr Reginald took it after seeing Joseph asked if Dr Treves could go and see Joseph himself they agreed and an appointment was made this is Dr Frederick Treves trained as a doctor in Dorchester born in Dorchester in 1853 and trained as a doctor in London he too would scour the streets for exhibitions And there was a report in the Gynoscope, a medical medical journal in 1898, which actually reported on the scientific obsessions with these sideshow acts. And the senior physician was actually known to visit Barnum's show and inspect the freaks on display. The meeting between Treves, Joseph and Tom took place in a coffee house on the Whitechapel Road when Tom was buying breakfast. And Tom gave Treves and Joseph 15 minutes After the meeting, Dr. Tuckett came across again and inquired if Joseph would visit Dr. Treves at the London Hospital, and Joseph agreed, thinking it would do him no harm. But after about the third or fourth visit, he didn't want to go back. He said he didn't mind being shown under the showman's stewardship, but at the hospital, it felt like cattle in a cattle market. And these medical examinations became repeatedly gruesome and were known as medical sideshow acts. They were very lucrative and very competitive. Dr. Bland Sutton's anatomical demonstrations got the nickname Bland Sutton's Entertainment. And again, Dr. Treves asked if Joseph would go across to the hospital. He had a private party wishing to view Joseph. Joseph again refused. And one week later, Joseph and Tom's show was shut down. The pair split up. Joseph had 50 pounds and went to live with an elderly couple in Whitechapel, friends of Tom Normans, until the spring season of 1885, when he went to work for Sam Roper. It was Sam Roper that devised Josie's famous hat, hood and cloak. This was a travelling circus, and they went round many market towns, specifically around the East Midlands. Sam Roper himself was a native to Leicester and is actually buried there. The idea of the cloak and the hood was to stop gangs of youths and the public chasing after Joseph in these market towns. It's just the way that Joseph could be shielded. Joseph traveled round with the circus in a caravan. This is a Burton, very popular with showmen, very wide base at the bottom with the wheels protruding out to give you more floor space, possibly two beds, an area for your knickknacks and your personal items, a stove in the middle used more generally for heat because a lot of the cooking was done outside. Now, Joseph stayed with Sam Roper for the spring season of 1885 and it was by the end of the April and May adverts were starting to appear in the local press and the music papers Advertising Joseph's show for sale. The Elephant Man, the greatest novelty on record, prefers the continent. Address, some talk as above. This was in May, 1885. We don't know what happened on the continent. Nobody does. We've only got the short tale that Joseph actually said. He said that he was abandoned in Ostend and all his money was stolen the shows were failing and met with disgust. But these shows were flourishing in the continent. Lords George Sanger, P.T. Barnum were well established. In 1889, the World's Fair in Paris exhibited 400 indigenous people, which attracted 28 million spectators. But somehow or another, Joseph did find his way back to England and at the doors of the London hospital. And it was Sir Francis Cargon, the chairman of the London hospital, who actually said, with great difficulty, he succeeded somehow or another in getting to the door of the London hospital. No explanation at all of how he actually got there. And Joseph arrived at the doors. The only possessions he had were the clothes he stood up in. The receiving rooms were bare, rows of benches, male and female rooms where the surgeons worked and this is where Joseph met up up again with Dr Frederick Treves. And whatever conversation happened between the pair, in December 1886, through the generosity and compassion of others, a residence known as Bed Bed Square was given to Joseph. Dr Trees visited daily, as well as many other house surgeons. Dr Winfield Granville said that Joseph would talk freely of how he would look in a bottle of alcohol. So maybe Joseph knew his fate. William Taylor, the engineer who designed his rooms, would visit, as well as his son, Charles, who was a violinist and gave Joseph private violin recitals. Nurse Emma Island would visit along with her volunteer nurses. Tom Norman tried to visit once. He had received a note from a porter at the London hospital who had overheard Joseph asking when he could go back to Mr Norman. So Tom tried to visit, but was refused entry and the pair never saw each other again. In 1887, a year after Joseph got his residences at Bedstead Square, the Prince and Princess of Wales opened two buildings, the nursing home and the medical college, and there they came to visit Joseph. After that, it sparked up a relationship, a very special friendship between Joseph and the princess, and she would send him photographs and signed Christmas cards, and the prince would also send him gifts of meats and and drinks from his various estates. Joseph also had many benefactors that gave money but didn't visit. One of those was Madge Kendall, a famous actress at the time. She arranged for Joseph to go and see his first Christmas pantomime, at Drury Lane Theatre. He went to see Puss in Boots. There he went in a private box with three ward sisters in front and Trees and Joseph sat at the back. Joseph also was into the arts and crafts and he made this beautiful cardboard cut at Maines Cathedral as a present for Madge Kendall. After Joseph died, she donated it back to the London Hospital Museum and is still on display. She also arranged Joseph to have holidays, and between 1887 and 1889, Joseph had three holidays in the workers' cottages at the Falsley Hall Estate in Northamptonshire, under the invitation of Lady Louisa Knightley. And it was at this cottage, Redhill Farm in Chipping Warden, He met a young man called Walter Steele. Walter Steele would help Joseph post letters to Treves, help him write and describe his enchanting and passionate interpretations of his adventures, his bewilderment at strange birds, startled hares, how he'd seen trout dancing in the river and how he'd made friends with a fierce dog. He also, Dr. Treves also arranged for Joseph to meet a young lady called Lila Manchurim. Joseph still suffered with his confidence and hadn't really had any type of experience with women and young ladies. So Lila went to meet Joseph and she shook his hand and smiled. And since then, Dr. Treves said Joseph grew in confidence and he would then always meet his visitors with a shake of a hand and a smile. And Joseph actually wrote this letter to Lila, thanking her for the lovely grouse that she had sent him. This letter still exists today, and it's actually at the Leicestershire, Leicester and Rutland Records office. Joseph also visited Dr Treves's house, and he described it as his fantasy house that he'd read about in his favourite Jane Austen book of Emma. Joseph's last holiday was in 1889, where he returned back to a very cold and foggy London. It had been 10 years since he had seen his uncle Charles, six years since he had seen Sam Tor. He had traveled the country, been to London, met Tom Norman, gone to the continent, met royalty, been to the theater, had holidays, made friends, but now his health was failing Joseph was suffering from bronchitis and had a weak heart. The growth in his mouth that it had removed at the Leicester Union workhouse was growing back. Joseph started to attend mass at the hospital chapel where he was confirmed by the suffragan Bishop of the East End, Dr William Walsham Howe. It was on Easter Sunday in 1890 that Joseph attended mass twice. And on the evening of the 10th of April, he took his usual walk in the grounds of the London Hospital. The following day, the 11th of April 1890, Nurse Emma Island visited Joseph and gave him breakfast. And he was sitting up in bed and was his usual happy, healthy, chatty self. The wardmaid came at 1.30pm and dropped off Joseph's lunch. She left him to eat it at his leisure. At 3.30 that afternoon, Dr Sidney Hodgett came to visit Joseph on his regular rounds. He walked down the steps, through the little passageway, opened the door into Joseph's apartments at Bedstead Square and instantly saw Joseph lying across the bed and realised he was dead. He called for Dr Ash and the two doctors confirmed that Joseph had died from asphyxiation Due to the weight of his head on his neck, Joseph's father was alive and well and living with his rather large family in Leicester when his son died. But it was his uncle Charles Barnabas Merrick who made the made the long journey from Leicester to London to identify his son, his nephew's body. Once there had been a funeral and a service. Josie's body was handed over to Dr Frederick Treves, the licensed autonomist at the hospital. Josie's flesh was removed and his bones were bleached twice. Some tissues were preserved for medical purposes, but were destroyed in World War Two. Josie's skeleton is on display at the Queen Mary's Medical College in London. The rest of Josie's flesh was taken to the City of London Cemetery and Crematorium in Newham, given a private ceremony in the Episcopal Chapel and was blessed by a priest. Joseph Carey Merrick was laid to rest in the City of London Cemetery and Crematorium in Newham in East London. An unmarked grave, but in consecrated ground, in the religion that Joseph believed in. The grave was unmarked until recently, last year, a brass plaque was put in place to mark Joseph's final resting place. There isn't much left now of Joseph. We have a replica of his skeleton on display at the City of London Hospital Museum. You can still see the church that he made for Madge Kendall, his famous hat and hood, and a replica of the letter that he wrote to Lila Mansourin. So ladies and gentlemen, I would like to end my talk in the words of Tom Norman, Joseph Carey Merrick, who is probably one of the most remarkable human beings ever to draw. The breath of life. Thank you. Cheers.